Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group. I'm here as always with James Whelan of VFS Group. How are you now, Paul? Uh, good mate. Uh, joining us from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Colgo. I'm well. Sun's out, snow's melted, and we can actually traverse the streets. So we're on our way. Good stuff. Uh, we have got a real treat for you this week, uh, listeners. We talked all about the GameStop insanity on the last show, uh, all that nonsense. But over the next couple of shows, we are taking a deep breath, going back to the question of what's happening to the global economy. Uh, after the truly remarkable year we've just been through. We are delighted to be joined for this conversation by a globally renowned strategist and economist. Uh, Kit Dukes uh, joined uh, Societe Generale as global head of FX strategy in 2010 before taking an additional role covering fixed income, credit and currency strategy before Sockton. Uh, Kit was chief economist at the ECU Group, a London-based currency management firm. And before that, he was global head of research at RBS. Uh, Kit has been around. He was just telling us that uh, he bought some Nikkei in, uh, in 1989. Yeah. Um, so uh, Kit's insights and perspectives are sought the world over by investors and global corporates. So we are delighted to have him on the show. Kit Jukes, welcome to The Bip Show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I know Ken is champing at the bit uh, 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 to get in here. So uh, Ken, dive in. Shall do. Kit, uh, g'day mate. Uh, it's, it's been a long old while and uh, last time we caught up, I think it was the tail end of 19 and it involved pints when I was back in London, sadly. Not on this occasion, but hopefully soon one day again. Um, and, and I echo uh, Paul's sentiment in uh, in thanking you for being on the show today. But um, I suppose getting you know getting into it, um, as Colgo mentioned, let's take a deep breath. And, and what I want to start off with with you initially is just just to get a sense from you um, what your perception is of where we are today in in market terms. So basically, in your mind. Whereabouts in the cycle are we? You know, and, and how, more to the point, does this translate across asset classes? Uh, I, I guess, I mean, I think it's a, it, it, I mean, it's obviously self-evident. It's just a very odd cycle. But I, I think we've mm. been forced, probably in, in all assets, to um, probably to make it a shorter cycle in markets because we're having to look further into the future, if that doesn't sound stupid. So, you know, Everything changed on the 23rd of March last year when the Fed kind of completed its week of um, of policy moves, um, fixing the cross uh, cross currency swap market in in foreign exchange, uh, fixing Treasury repo, making it broadly accessible, fixing monetary easing, fixing their lending program to companies, uh, and really just changing the mood in financial markets in, in a way that that's so much bigger than anything they've done before. Uh, you know, I mean, it was much more aggressive than than after the financial crisis, uh, and much more timely than during the Asian crisis. If I go back that far, um, 
that that to my mind you know the, the, we we like to think in calendar years but that, that was a massive change from markets from that moment on we're effectively saying financial markets can price in an economic recovery um, but but they can price it in with the you know with the certainty that the Fed's going to be so far behind the curve on on tightening that 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 you know that we don't even have to think about it. Then then when when vaccines started to emerge and we we got the second round of of really major optimism through the autumn, um, and, and and inevitably I think that that once we've done that, it means that we're pricing in an economic recovery, which for some people. Um, isn't going to happen until next year, possibly. But we've been doing it for six months quite merrily. Um, and I think it's the right thing for markets to do. You know, I, 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 we hardly care about kind of today's economic data. We hardly really care about today's policy rates because we're looking further out. Um, and, and we're moving through markets looking at, at, you know, at who is going to outperform now, but, but mostly it's pretty one-dimensional. Rates are really low. There's a big economic recovery coming. It's pretty V-shaped by the nature of it, is, of it uh, and it's going to get to everybody in the end. By the time we get that recovery, markets, I think, will have, will have, will have you know, eaten up all of the joy that can come from it, and we'll have to move to the next thing. So um, we should enjoy it while it lasts, but it's this year's story, surely. Will the markets eat up that joy before, well before the recovery comes, do you think, or is it sort of, you know, simultaneously because I, I personally think that I think that that joy is going to get devoured fairly quickly like the appetite is is unending and uh, yeah what do you think uh, look I think it's this year's business not next year's business I think next year yeah. um, you know ne next year is a, is a completely different story so so if my day job is forecasting foreign exchange rates I think the um, the low for the US dollar is a 2021 story not a 2022 story sure sure and I mean and, and it's it's, it's what, what you mentioned uh, in, in answering that, I suppose, regarding the fact that markets are now looking, you know, not even in calendar year terms, but sort of looking at that, that, that well, beyond that, looking through and discounting data. And, and, I mean, the market's been discounting data since probably midway through last year when it realised that it, it just simply doesn't matter. Um, but to that end, I suppose, that drives my next question to you, which is, as far as I'm concerned, and, and it's ironic to me, but... The market has proven itself over the course of, say, the last nine or even 12 months to be incredibly efficient as a discounting mechanism. I mean, that's that's not to say it hasn't been violent and, and incredibly quick, but exactly as you mentioned, you know, we, we discounted the fact that Fed's got your back, vaccine's on its way, roaring 20s, which we'll cover, you know, thematically later in, in the show. But all of these things, it, it's all good news and we can discount everything and efficiently, you know, look at where we are. So, I suppose, and also, as you mentioned, rates are, you know, clearly they're staying low for God knows how long. And the fact that we're seeing some marginal steepening somewhere in the curve, yeah, that, that's the back end and does it really matter? But uh, my question is, you know, how, how does that environment, to your mind, affect uh, the investment and or speculative trends that we're likely to see over, okay, let's not get too ahead of ourselves, over, say, the next uh, six to 12 months? I think in you know look I think I think the battle now in terms of the important market I mean the most important market today I suspect is the bond market again um, for more than anything else because that's where that's where the tension is between market and Fed that's the, where the tension is between good inflation bad inflation uh, that's where fiscal policy plays itself out if it does 
you know, I'm, I've, I've always believed that, that the number of bonds you sell doesn't really affect yields, but you know, only in a minor way. It might mm. affect spreads if you have to crowd investment out of corporate bonds into government bonds in one country. Um, it can have you know other effects, but but the bond market tells you, you know, broadly speaking, where people think yields will be in a really long time, depending on how far down the curve you go, and and that battle that we now have as people scramble to get protection from against possible inflation, when when the Fed is saying it's going to tolerate more of it, um, is you know is going to drive things because you know equity strategists are going to run around working out at what level of bond yields do my sums on equity valuation no longer work. Uh, mm-hmm. And in the foreign exchange market, we'll try to work out whether, you know, we, we, we believe that we're going to get a weak dollar because the Fed's on hold for a really long time or a strong dollar because yield differentials are moving in favor of the US. And so, this, so h- how far bond yields go and how fast, perhaps more than anything else, how fast bond mm-hmm. yields go um, is probably going to determine everything. Now, you know, I lean to a view in, in that sense over the next six to nine months that the Fed you know, with a clear plan to make sure that we embed a global economic recovery is is ultimately doesn't want to, you know, wants to let the bond market go wherever it goes when yields are still this low, but isn't going to let this get out of control. And that in the near term, inflationary pressures aren't nearly high enough for the bond market to get out of control properly. So that we'll end up with a, you know, with, with the kind of the recent pace of, of yield rises um, being unsustainable and that'll calm down and, and let us have risk assets perform in the next six to nine months. But, um, you know, I, I notice myself check bond yields in bed in the morning again, which I haven't done <laughs> for a few years. Yeah, as have I admittedly this morning. But, and that's sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, is, is it dog wagging tail or tail wagging dog in that, you know, the narrative in the last, I don't know, 36 hours is that, well, the 30 basis points that we've seen in the 10 year is horrific. It's curtailed the, the recent all-time high rally in spurs and risk assets and my god if this goes on you know we're, we're facing an imminent crash but to your point exactly i mean th- does the market at some point reconcile that well hang on if we really drive yields too far too quick we're we're sort of we're we're, we're cutting our nose off to spite our face because i mean you know plenty of people are invested in the equity space yields go up too quickly you're not going to force the fed's hand this year that that they've made clear so they're not they're not going to intimate raising rates but you are going to potentially hurt your wallet in in the equity freefall that could ensue, even if it's for say ten percent and it's brief. So I suppose there's that mix. I mean, what what to your mind if we take the ten year run? What to your mind is uh, the critical level and how quickly we get this? I mean, if we get there over a space of two weeks, that's that's pretty pretty dire. But what's the level? I, I think that's the piece. Right? To me, to me, for the sake of argument, if we went to one and a half percent right now. Th- yeah. That might be just about bearable, but that would be a stretch. But but we mm. could get two percent by Christmas without anything going really badly wrong. Sure. So so I, so I I do think the time. Now look, I mean, I'd take it one step further than that and say you flip it around and say this is in a sense what we've created that's dangerous is that if if markets need if markets need uh, you know yields to be under three percent for the foreseeable future. If that's where we are, looking back at where the peak was in in rates in the last cycle and the one before, then then how do you reach an equilibrium between asset prices and the real economy if you sit there and think, well, you know, over most of my life, I should probably over exactly my life, nominal yields have averaged roughly the same as nominal GDP growth. And that kind of made sense to me. (laughs) But 
but and if and if now if now them getting anywhere near nominal growth is catastrophic, you know maybe that so 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 we have short term equilibria with low yields, but at some point we're going to have to get back to a longer term equilibrium for the global economy and global markets. Otherwise, we're going to have asset prices that that create bubbles or overshoots and need to come back, mm. bringing recessions with them until we do. Uh, and so, you know, we're not solving the long the long term problem at the moment. We're just dealing with a with a nasty virus. Um, but yeah. but I but you you would want in that sense the Fed probably you know knows enough to think I'd like these things to edge up um, in a controlled fashion because staying too low for too long just isn't healthy in terms of what it does. Yeah, and, and I suppose that, that's you know that that's a central bank issue that, that we can cover off at some point. But I mean, we're talking about you know the great toilet flush that never happened in our way as much as it was needed. Uh, the great financial reckoning that I, I probably think will will not be in my professional life, lifetime. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is what happens when money is free and even at 2% or whatever else, you know, if you're using that risk-free rate to discount valuations, well, well what are you going to do? Um, I think uh, James wanted to jump in just quickly. Is that right, mate? Yeah, Kit, uh, mate, thanks for coming on and it's really good to talk to you. Uh, mate, you've said a lot of stuff and I've written down a lot of notes and thank you, Ken, for giving me an, an edge in here, mate. Look, uh, look, I'll go with the last thing you said. So you, uh, so you said that markets need a certain yield percentage to, uh, to, to survive, to keep on going. I'm a thematic guy and wouldn't – wouldn't it just be certain markets potentially that need a certain yield to survive or is it all markets do you think like is, is now the time and 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 look 2020 was the was the year of in march just buy everything and just go nuts because everything's just going up because this is the asset bubble this is the everything bubble but is 2021 and this is what people are saying is the, is the time to be picking themes and be and be very specific about it as potentially the rotation kicks on so uh, what what yields do certain markets need Potentially, I, I, I guess different markets need different yields, and there is a, there is a common sort of piece. If you look, you know, we we um, we live in in Anglo-Saxon countries where uh, our housing markets are expensive because our rates are low. Um, perhaps Australia is also because it's a really cool place with lots of with a growing number of people. But hey, the central principle, you know, we're going to find a world this year in Anglo-Saxon economies in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada where house prices are going to get supported by keeping rates down. And and so, and so some of those, some you know, and, and some that you know, in the Anglo-Saxon economies that are driven by by that, it's the whole economy that's overly geared to it. Now there are different assets, there are different assets, and certainly different bits of, of for example, the equity market that are. That are less sensitive. Some like steep curves, uh, like the financial sector, uh, and that that helps them make money. Um, uh, and, and some don't care very much because that they're not they're not dependent on, uh, on on money to finance their business. I'm not sure you know the tech sector, you know, is a def- different thing from every, everything else because th- th- these are cash rich people that they don't they don't need to worry about that. So yeah, I think it makes a it makes a big difference. Um, but 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 in, in, you know I'd, I'd sort of come back and say at the moment when we're coming when we've when we've saved the day for markets with just truly extraordinary monetary policy, how we normalise that policy, you know, is going to make a difference to pretty much everything. But you know, I, I do in, in that sense overall look. I think you know if if you have a controlled rise in in, in U.S. yields, then um, maybe that still means people want to be underweight government bonds, but it gives 
credit spreads a chance to tighten further uh, in, in the current environment. Um, and, and particularly if you limit government bond moves and you keep the dollar soft, it gives a chance for money to start flowing in earnest um, towards emerging markets at some point, which um, you know, which which really does make a difference to, to things. Can, but can, but I am slightly sorry. Yeah, can, can I ask you about uh, in that context the uh, outlook for business investment? Uh, I, I saw um, a chart um, uh, last week uh, showing uh, capex as a, a per percentage of uh, Australian GDP, uh, and it is uh, as low now uh, as it was uh, around the, the early nineties recession. Here at about um, ten and a half, eleven percent uh, of GDP. Um, so during, during the mining boom, it was you know up up, up around uh, fifteen plus um, or more. Um, so, um, but but wh where do you think like with rates where they are? Uh, and in our experience, certainly in Australia, I'm not sure what the it's like in Europe. But hurdle rates uh, for in, in investments um, by companies uh, staying relatively high and not coming down uh, along with, say, for example, the, the, the US 10-year. Um, uh, what do you think about the outlook for business investment and the types of areas that we might see um, strong capital ex expenditure or, or the lack of it? I, I think you're going to have to get, I mean, so you know, first up, in, in this environment of really cheap money, we've seen far too many companies who are far too happy to buy back shares to prove, improve their share price rather than you know, making investments to improve what they do, if, if that's too simplistic. And that, that environment has given us, you know, serious doubts about what happens to trend growth over the course of the next 10, 15 years. So, you know, the, the, the big story out there is, is, to some degree, this, this you know, excessively easy monetary policy has, is having damaging long-term side effects. So can we, can we, can we do this temporarily? Um, the, the, I think the big unknown is, is how we manage a lot of the fiscal spend in various in various places in terms of how it feeds through um, into potential growth and into investment, because the biggest investor in most economies in the next couple of years is going to be governments with what they're doing. And if what they're doing is try to move to more environmentally friendly economies, for example, if they're going to make investments that do that, then we'll get a lot of investment. Now, what it does to the way we calculate GDP, if it gives us cleaner air, is going to be another thing for us to worry about. But um, but that's where the investment needs to come. They need to lead and to fuel investment. The current state of play, I mean, you're right, if the hurdle rate for investment is high and the return of buying back your shares as a company um, is attractive, I know what I'd take. we're not in a good place. No, and it's and it's too easy to do. Um, Ken, back, back over to you. Uh, thank you, guys. Um, that sort of, well, it, in, in one way or another, ties back to where, where I wanted to take the next... Um, well, yeah, the next question, let's say. Uh, uh, tail end of last year, so sort of, you know, late December, mid late December, all the, all the annual outlooks for 21 were being published by the sell side. And generally, on the fact that there was a, there was a vaccine available or a couple of vaccines available, et cetera, et cetera, thematically, every man and his dog was talking about uh, the roaring 20s redux. Yeah, Goldman Sachs came out with a note and everyone sort of jumped onto the back of it. And... I suppose it makes sense to me, you know, at, at, a, at, a, at a, you know, helicopter level, the, the idea of it, um, you know, the reflation trade, everything's going to be great, things are reopening, people are going to be out there spending this, that and the other. Without getting into the weeds, and, and there's a, there's a follow-up to this, I suppose my question to you, Kit, is 
you know, do you subscribe to the idea? Yes or no? Um, Roaring Twenties, yeah, that the weeds are bigger than the, than the story. But Z-shaped global economic recovery in the first instance, yes. Because mm, once mm. we unlock, you know, look, we're going down the pub. I mean, that's just what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so with, with that in mind, I suppose, you know, that, that, that goes into the whole reflation trade and what we spoke about earlier in terms of markets being able to discount very quickly, if not, if not violently. In the last, literally in the last few days, seemingly out of nowhere, but I suppose it follows on from, it's the natural progression of, well, if there's a reflation trade uh, and, and, and a paradigm in the world, then, you know, this talk of the great commodity bull super cycle has just, you know, sprouted within the last, as I said, 72 hours or thereabouts. I mean, it's probably a bit longer in the making, but there's a lot of noise about it, um, you know, coming out. And... To me, my, my two cents worth is that it's a function of, yeah, natural conclusion of the reflation trade markets discounting for the here and now, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's set to last. I don't think this is the, the next bull run super cycle in commodities because, frankly, well, that's just not my view. So is, is, it a, is it a case of the market discounting very quickly or is this time genuinely, you know, as they say, different? What, what do you think? No, look, I think one of the things I get when I talk to our to our commodity analysts is, is that they'll come back sort of relatively repeatedly and say, you've got to be careful because there's lots of different stories for why we've had commodity prices higher um, just in, in, in the short run. So, you know, the, the things that have driven a lot of the agricultural prices up in recent months have nothing to do with the global economy, commodity super cycle stuff. You know, the, the, driver, of, the driver of copper is... Um, is not the same as, as, as the driver of some of the other things. So, you know, there are things that if, if we're all going to drive electric cars, that there are some commodities that are going to do really well. But that's not the same as a global as a global commodity cycle. And yeah. and so I so I do worry. I worry with the idea that you can talk about a global cycle when the first thing I look at and talk about in my mind is, you know, that that the, the nature of this particular recession was unique was that if you open up the doors and let everybody go out you get back a lot of the you know a lot of the spent up spending gets spent really quickly frankly um, and that gives you a great sugar rush but I'm, I'm not sure i build super cycles off sugar rushes yeah so and i know james is going to jump in here and i'll let him do that but that actually i want to touch touch once james has, has, has mentioned uh, what he wants to have a chat about exactly that like I, I think you and i subscribe to the exact same thing and it's the great inflation debate which feeds into it you know is it transitory or real but we'll get back to that james i know you're you're, you're chomping at the bit yeah uh, yeah no, that's uh thank you uh kit uh, look yeah, okay so so sum, summarize that one that you've got okay i'm a big food guy so i've been long food for a while and then just recently or actually a while ago i was long commodities and then Timed it, you know. I've I've retimed it to be to, to be long commodities again. Everything except gold. For some reason, gold. We won't do gold this episode because that's a whole episode, and then we're going to get a lot of feedback. But food, that's like a bad episode. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a good. It's it's going to be a good episode. Don't worry about that. And then wait until we do crypto, Paul. That's a whole different thing. But so so, Kit, look, let's stay focused. So, the commodity super cycle. So so, so what's running on this one is that is that it's not one big. In my view, it's not one big sort of theme. It's not one big trend. It is actually, it is actually the way that you've laid it out. It's, it's the, it's, it's. There is a food shortage. There is actually, you know, a, 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 the, the shipping shortage. There is actually a shipping price increases. There's actually, there's actually that that food physically getting food from one place to another 
that it, that potentially it has a virus on it. That was the that that was the key that food is more expensive to get it to. It goes back to the the German health minister saying that meat is too cheap. That that the meat factories are actually sort of being run like, like it, it, crazy cheap. That you actually need to put proper workers in and proper healthcare facilities in and actually put put separation in. But then you've also got the other thing with it with the fact that you've got EV. You know, an EV car compared to a, an internal combustion engine takes three times as much copper. There's physically, and I've heard this, and, and I've yet to see it proven, but but the people who I trust to know these things tell me that there's literally not enough lithium on the planet, in the planet, to be able to sit in the batteries that we need to run all of these cars that, 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 that we were actually going to have. Maybe, maybe with all of this spending we're actually on, you know, we are actually on the precipice of this, like a super cycle. That it's not a, a continual continue. It's it's not. Go back, go back to what two thousand and five, six, seven, and I remember these days when I was coming in of China. It was just it. The, the super cycle was easy. It was China. China's just buying everything. Everything's going to be fine because China is buying everything. Because look at these guys. They're, they're growing. They've got nine nine and a half percent GDP growth. Everything is fantastic. Now potentially we've got the super cycle that is just a whole bunch of different areas like you just laid out that are all coordinating in being very very bullish for the potentially the next three four five years. And I, and I think that, and I think that they have. I mean, they have different stories. So if I take a, certainly, you know, a lot of food is is unlike copper. I mean, co- copper to grain is an easy is an easy comparison where you can ramp up output of grain really quickly, but you can't do it in three. You, know, you can do it over a over a growing season. If I know it's, if if there's a shortage of grain, I can't do anything to get more grain out in this harvest. Yep. But I can plant more for next harvest, and my plans are affected by it. So, so you you get short-term spikes in that that are pretty important. That's completely different from copper or, or lithium, um, where you know for a really long time the amount of investment to get global copper supplies up is is pretty monumental, um, and lithium will no doubt be the same. Although apparently the biggest lump of lithium um, in, in Europe is on Dartmoor, so I'm, I'm, you know maybe my house in Devon is going to be worth more than my house in London <laughs> one of these days, um, e- even if it's going to be scary. But but so so I think they're different stories. So. Uh, and I'm and I'm cautious enough to think that some of them are going to have longer legs than others of them uh, overall. And that you're right. You know, and that, you know, our past experiences when you get a great lurch forwards in global demand, then commodities all go up together. We are not getting a great lurch forward in in global demand. We're seeing a big fall in demand that's rapidly replaced, and then we go back as we were with you know an aging Chinese economy and and. And, and all the things that we're used to. So, so I think it's different, and, and that, that's not to knock the idea that, you know, saying it's different doesn't mean commodity prices won't go higher. But it, it's certainly not the same super cycle as the last one. And one of the big one of the big kickers for a for a commodities bull market, or the the, the just the easy bull case for a commodities bull market, is a weakening US dollar, and that's that's a big part of the the investment thesis behind it of doing that. So. If we want to talk about relative yields, so, so sort of lay out the case that you've got there with with the fact that if all yields are moving in an upwards direction across the you know ac- across the euro, across the US, across Australia, then that's okay. Then that that's 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 not a bearish case for the US dollar. What's the bearish case for the US dollar? I, I think, in a sense, the I mean, there's, there's two parts to a bearish case. Yes, but the, the, the first one is that 
you know, foreign exchange markets were trundling along, if you like, until 2015, when the ECB, bothered by how expensive the euro was, dramatically changed monetary policy, I guess. Two years after the Japanese dramatically changed monetary policy, drove rates to zero, real rates into significantly negative territory, and got their currencies to fall very sharply. The U.S. has spent the next few years with a really increasingly expensive currency because they're the odd man out that hasn't done that. Last March to August was was Jay Powell's draggy moment, if you want, or Jay Powell's Abenomics moment, if you want, in terms of BRJ policy. And we're trying to get currencies back to roughly where they were before any of us did that, where the U.S. economy is still better than the Japanese economy or the European economy. But interest rate differentials are just completely different from what they've been for the last few years. Now, we're resetting to that at the moment, and I don't think we're necessarily done. That'll be done this year, though. You know, it's not a new long-term, if you like, dollar-bear cycle, because the U.S. economy is going to outgrow Europe and Japan in the next 10 years, in all likelihood, uh, because the bond market's telling you, really, that when we settle down, we'll get to higher rates in the U.S. But in the short run, while they've got really low short-term rates, really low real rates, and a really big fiscal need, fiscal deficit that's going to drag their current account deficit into different territory. I think this undermines it. And on the positive side of it, we get to exactly the right place of a global smile where, frankly, the returns of a money returns to money from leaving the United States or, or Europe um, are going to be attractive. The rest of the world is, is just a better place to put money. I would put money in Australia or New Zealand uh, before putting it in the United States at this point at, at these rates for sure. Um, and so I think that's the case for, for the 2021 dollar fall, which I don't think is over. 2022, 2023 is much harder if the Fed then finds that this boost to U.S. growth does lead to outperformance over the next five years in growth terms. Um, then uh, then the Fed will be normalizing next, you know, possibly earlier than, than they want to. It's talking about normalizing um, through 2022 at some point. And, and, and then I think we're done. The, the dollar cycle's going back the other way. So, and so, so in that sense, and again, I'll, I'll go back to the commodity cycle. I, I, you know, the, the good bits of it will all happen this year. Just, uh, just while we're on the, on the, on the notion of the dollar, um, how, how do you see, I mean, it's not, it's not going to be a smooth, okay, the dollar's got room still to weaken this year and probably by the end of this year it's done and next year and, and thereabouts it looks to consolidate and pick up. But uh, what, what kit do you say to the fact that, I mean, Throughout this, or what's left of this year, it's it's not. I don't think it's going to be a smooth. You know, the dollar just keeps declining, be it a little bit quick, a little bit slow. I think we, we've seen already in the last probably few weeks or, or month there about just this notion of you know there are days and weeks where the dollar decouples and then recouples with an overall risk sentiment. So I mean, it, it has almost mini dollar smiles within the space of a week or, or ten days, and then and then it goes back to the broader arching theme of. A weaker dollar because, or for all the reasons you described. I mean, is, is that something that you think is temporary, or do you think that's how this overall dollar weakening this year is going to play out continually? Yeah, look, I think I think if you said that the dollar the dollar's fall started, you know, it started on the twenty fourth of March uh, when we woke up in the morning, we didn't realise it fast enough uh, collectively. No. That, that by the time we get to this year, as is the way in the foreign exchange market, a lot's priced in. Um, so, mm-hmm. so you know, so if we if we took euro dollar from one hundred eight to one twenty two, um, that that's the meat. You know, one thirty might be reachable, somewhere between one twenty five, one thirty surely should be reachable in my mind. But 
that that still means I've eaten three quarters of my meal now. I mean, I'm on I'm on coffee and biscuits at this yeah. point, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and and that bit's messier. I think that that that's that's fair. Um, and and again, you know, a bond-driven FX market is messy because when when you've anchored the front end and the, and the long end's wanging around, it, it, it puts choppiness rather than real volatility into it. Well, that's it. I mean, FX looks to discount, you know, the here and now within within a nanosecond, generally. I mean, that's always been a, a good thing about the FX market, despite despite overshoots. But exactly that, if the front and even to some degree the belly is is pinned, then yeah, then I mean, you're discounting fresh air because how are you going to discount the, the back end? But so okay, but but following on with with a weaker dollar, you know, theme. How, how does this play out for EM? What you know is EM the big winner in the potential for commodities to run higher, irrespective of the rationale why commodity prices run higher, uh, a weaker dollar, etc. Uh, you know, okay. The, the first part of the answer is not useful, which is I really, really, really hope so. And the second part is it's bound to be, it, it, it's bound because it's a good thing. So if I if if you kind of summarised it all, it is that monetary policy drives developed market currencies far more than economic activity. Some people outside the FX market struggle with. Um, uh, but then in emerging markets, economic growth prospects drive everything, right? Um, mm. Because because I don't, I don't just buy XYZ's bonds because they've got a, a higher yield. I have so, you know, I buy, I don't know, I buy Turkish bonds now because they've had a complete, total and utter sort of, at least for a few years, epiphany on how they run monetary policy in their country so it's safe again and then we then we go off like a train but 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 so so you know in 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 places in in latin america where they haven't solved the pandemic where they've got some you know some some difficult governments to 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 cope with in terms of how they do things then i think that's it's just you know you you need the growth story to improve oh. and for the last i mean the last decade the emerging market growth story if we if we strip out what used to be called emerging asia sort of greater china um you know that it's not been good enough and that's mm. what they need most of all now maybe you know so so a commodity cycle a commodity cycle would change that for a while right um but but we, we you know globally the, the the global economy needs you know, to figure out how to help emerging market economies to grow, really, that that comes down to it. Then the other bit that we say about, I'll, I'll just throw it in there, is that when people talk about emerging markets, you know, a, a lot of what, uh, just an enormous amount of it's a function of what happens in China, because it's such a big weight, which is just a different story. Um, and, and, and that's um, that that's separate. And in foreign exchange terms, you'd have to turn around and say that, you know, when you look at the Ch- Chinese thing, you know, it's not a free-floating currency in, in the way that others are. It, it's much more tightly controlled, um, and, and you know, they've let it get stronger than quite a lot of people thought already. But you wouldn't necessarily think they're going to let the the yuan go on some super strength because it's not obvious what they benefit from when their consumer prices are falling year over year. Yeah, exactly. And just one last point. I don't want to get too heavily into this, but you mentioned, you know, the, the fact that, you know, the, the growth that we've seen in, in you know, Greater Asia or, or thereabouts, you know, recently just simply wasn't good enough. But, I mean, is that predicated on the fact that people, it doesn't matter whether it's an EM or DM, frankly want to see growth that equaled, rivaled or, or whatever, paralleled growth, global growth levels that we saw pre-2008. And the fact that, that is a, a target that we're simply never going to reach. You know, aspirational, sure, but 
in, you know, we had 20, uh, 20, what, 10 was great, but certainly not pre, you know, le, le, you know, like levels pre 208. Um, you know, is, is this just, just foolish expectations, the fact that we're, we're just simply not going to get there? Yeah, I mean, look, you, you know, I mean, the North Asian economies are all similar enough in some regards in the sense that, you know, they, they all have declining birth rates. They've all got aging populations. Uh, they all have savings cultures. How do you how do you generate long term sustainable growth as your economy gets bigger out of that when when, you know, you're going to have to spend more and more of the domestic income, you know, looking after looking after the older people in families uh, growing the labor force will get eventually progressively harder. Um, you know, the, the, it can't be it can't be the sort of flat out export driven model of the last of the last 30 years. Uh, and, and yeah, so, so a, you know, a potential growth rate actually for the whole block of North Asia, um, you know, goes from a really high growth rate and then trends down. And, and I think it's, you know, and, and, and there are people who are very worried about what that means for the sustainability of debt levels and so on as well further out. But, but the first thing you do is that this is going to go on slowing slowly over time. It's just baked in the cake. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. So now, uh, a, a bugbear of mine, or not even a bugbear, but something that certainly James and I have uh, have Bring it tussled in. on and... Well, it's not even you and I. I mean, it's, it's generally, it's a, it's a fairly significant divide in, in markets as a whole, the yep. world over. The great inflation debate, you know, and certainly, let's put it in more finite terms, the great inflation debate as a consequence of all the stimulus, fiscal and monetary, that we've seen inside the last 12 months. My question is, is it, and, and I, I don't debate the fact that we're going to get a kick you know, there will be down the line, sooner rather than later, some kick to the inflation numbers. It doesn't matter whether they're nominal or real. But my, my, my whole thing is, and Kit, I want your input in this, is this going to be a transitory kick or is it going to be a real kick that actually moves us on to a, to a steady inflation path and, and everything that comes with it? What, what do you think? Um, look, we, we, we get we get some short-term effects because we've we've messed up supply chains and because you, know, you would expect some of that to happen. In the very short term, what we're seeing is that the way we design our consumer price index with things like shelter in the United States being a third of the overall thing is it might not come in terribly quickly and that the slack will, will offset. But you'll get a lot of, you know, you'll, you'll get a big jump in, in holiday prices when we're allowed to have any in, air, you know, in, in airfares when when. People want to get back on airplanes, and there aren't so many around anymore. You know, there's just a, a whole host of those kinds of effects that we're going to get mm. through in, in, in three the runoff. Sc- three scoops of ice cream theory. Exactly, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and that and that can adjust to it. I, I, behind that, there's a longer term. There's a longer term story, which, frankly, the first part of this, we know that the great disinflation has come from, you know, the collapse of the um, of the Soviet Union delivering workers into Europe and the opening of China delivering workers into the whole world. Uh, but at the same time as technology changed everything and that this has given us massive disinflation in a time when central bankers uh, have, have declared success in fighting inflation. And you look at it and think, not sure it was you really. I mean, something else was going on. Um, but but if, if, that those are ending over the course of the next, let's call it 10 to 20 years sufficiently, um, that we may well get some inflation back into the system. But the real piece about it is we, 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 we don't, we don't, easily understand long-term inflation and and so when people turn around and say yeah you know we know how to fight inflation I'm just, 
guys. <laughs> but we've been really successful when when a bunch of things came out of blue, blue out of the sky and helped us mm -hmm. um, watch out watch out with the cockiness. And at the same time, when it comes back to this piece, is are, you know are we going to be willing to fight inflation when it means putting interest rates at levels that asset prices aren't prepared for? And how far exactly. how hard will we fight? Yeah, and, and isn't that the greatest irony of all? You know, we're talking about fighting inflation where it can't be, it hasn't been cited for, for, for love nor money in, in God knows how long. And yet we're talking about, God forbid, things should overheat. Um, and look, the last point on that, and I suppose th this is something that I've, I've uh, inferred from the various notes of yours that, that I've read recently. Geographically, I think you're, if, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think, I think you're, you're sort of bullish on places like Australia, as you've mentioned, and to a degree Canada and or New Zealand. But I get the sense that that bullishness, you know, on a, on a, on a relative scale is based more so on the fact that you perceive that those countries are more likely to raise rates first or more quickly than other counterparts, be it the US, be it Europe, whoever it may be. I mean, is that it or is there more to it or have I got it completely wrong? No, I think it's a big part of it. Look, I think, you know, that it's one thing for Jay Powell to say we can keep rates low until, you know, through 2023. I, I don't know if, um, you know, if across the sea in New Zealand, I'm not sure that, that they've got enough macroprudential policies in the housing market to, uh, to have that luxury, frankly. Um, mm. You know, economies that are that are so interest rate sensitive already are, are going to be harder to control in, in in parts of the world where the fight against the, the virus has been more successful all along. Um, so if I look at Asia, so 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 with the currency hat on, I think that's fairly straightforward. I, I also think some countries have had, you know, a bigger win a bigger win in terms of how they've tackled this. Some countries are going to benefit more from the from the commodity strength we've already seen. But but yeah, look. You know, this is a world where nobody wants a strong currency, um, and the people mm. who can't afford to keep their rates down low enough to have a strong currency, uh, to, to have a weak currency, are going to be the you know the, the losers who get strong ones. Uh, almost as simple as that. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember a couple of years ago, Kit, uh, Kit, when and Ken and Paul and everyone, when when there was a currency war that was going on, and I, I, I read, reading your notes, Kit, that, that that was there that I, I've seen sort of mentioned that there potentially could be you know. Currency war sort of coming back on. Now that's not the question that I want to ask, but that is something probably we're going to raise on our Facebook page, provided Facebook actually allows us to say things. But we'll we'll go into that later. Now sticking with the inflation side of things. So so what I like to do with my guys is is to lay out a okay. It doesn't matter what you think. It it, it matters about what actually is the circumstance and then what you do. Let's talk about inflation back again so let's let's look at the uh the bank of america like i love the fund manager survey and everyone does love the fund manager survey the fund manager survey came out uh what yesterday and it, the the i always look at the inflation numbers six eighty six percent of fund manager survey investors expect higher inflation in the next 12 months which is down only six percent month on month now now last month that was the highest of all times what if it's not transitory what if okay so kit like Lay it out for us. Lay it out for us. Show me the show me the path here, where this is potentially the greatest reopening since the end of World War Two, and that's a, that's an expression that I've used. And I know look, the, the Great Gatsby Redux. That's don't the, have, no, yeah, sorry. it's it's yeah, no, no, it is. It's Gatsby, right? It's the twenties. It's the twenties. There's always a bubble in the twenties. What? Show me, show me what happens. Like, show me the investment case. What, what do you, what do you invest in if that actually is the case? Because I'm, I'm standing here just like that's the case that I've got. I've been right so far. 
what's the 2021? Okay, it's the greatest reopening. You've got two, maybe two. I've seen CNBC versus Morgan Stanley are both saying different numbers of how much money the US consumer has. Two, let's just say it's two trillion dollars of excess spending. Kit, go. Then I'll then I'll go back to if it's back to the 20s. You know, the biggest difference about the Gatsby in the 20s, uh, and 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 when people talk about you know how they use it is that it wasn't everybody. It was really limited to people who had fun. You know, the, the, the people who partied all the way through the 20s were not the same people as the ones that were going broke in Germany um, in hyperinflation. So so the answer is, if you know, it, the enormous amount of pent-up spending that there is in the world is concentrated in the hands of a dis- dispiritingly small number of people. Uh, and if you want to really enjoy that party... Go and give them the things that they want to spend their money on. Um, And maybe of all the most beaten up things, I don't know, maybe I should buy a cruise company. I mean, I can't imagine ever wanting to go on a cruise liner in my life, but maybe maybe this is what all old people with spare cash are going to go and do, go and look at whales up in Alaska or something. Um, But it's it's spending – it's spending on – um, it's it's spending on on things that that rich people spend on. It would be my guess. So, so on on inflation, then, uh, Kit's Paul Colgan here. Um, do you think this is uh, from one of our esteemed listeners? I won't say who, but he's a senior strategist here in Australia. He was curious to get your view on a couple of things um, with with the inflation. Do you think it's lowflation, uh, steady reflation, uh, tempflation, um, or 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 proper inflation that we're likely to see in the next? Uh, 12 months as, as the U.S. economy in particular recovers. Uh, look, we're, we're going to get a spike high in, in a spike higher certainly in headline inflation. We might see it in some of core inflation, um, but we'll be back down next year. Right. Um, so a tem- temporary pulse. Um, yeah, I'm, I say I have concerns about I have concerns about 10 years down the road, but we you know I'm too old to have big concerns about much longer than that really. But I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the next inflation cycle might. Might, might, you know, again, we, we're creating, you know, the, the things that gave us the disinflation of our careers and the falling bond yields of our careers, they, they are ending. Mm. Um, it's yeah. true. But, um, but that's got nothing to do with the inflationary spike that comes from the world reopening and, and oil prices going up and, and that kind of stuff, yeah, yeah. That, which, is, which, is, which we've seen before. Yeah, yeah. And there's so, uh, so much slack in the labor market um, uh, uh, that. Um, and were you surprised with the U.S. like how low the unemployment rate had to get before we started seeing little hints of inflation um, during the Trump, Trump administration? Um, y- yes, I was. But in that sense, it comes down to this idea that, that you know, you have to think of global labor as being important. You have to think right the way through the labor market. I think Jay Powell's right when, when you get to it. just this, this dumb sort of view we used to have about Nehru just doesn't help. Um, because because there's you know there's so much technology providing so many goods that are not affected by that. There's so much casual labour that if you want to get an old-fashioned wage-driven inflation cycle, you've got to get wage growth down to you know down to the Uber driver, down to the down to the casual labourer. And there's so many people who want those jobs, and there's so many more now. You know. Yeah. Uh, that, and that they're going to be a huge rate. I, mean, I don't know how, you know, it probably must be the same in, in, in Australia. I don't know how many young sort of student age people who would like to be working in anything from a, from a coffee bar to a charity shop to anything else that's shut at the moment will be zapping <laughs> at the feet of anybody who's allowed to open one of those things when they can. Wages aren't going to go up much at that level. So, you know, I, I think when we look at it in that sense, right now, you, 
you know, we shouldn't be surprised that the way we calculate wage growth, yeah, yeah. That, that, that there's a big drag. Uh, and the incent- Old people going back to work, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and well, particularly in, in Australia where we have um, pretty, pretty generous welfare uh, pr- provisions. So, for example, uh, farmers uh, find it very, very hard to get farmhands at the moment. Um, even though, you know, unemployment is six and a half percent. So, um, um, other question, um, what do you think matters for foreign exchange markets more, U.S. real yields or nominal yields? Um, I, I look, I, look I, I think real yields do matter more than they used to. I, you, you get a, Ever since the Japanese moved to zero rates, you've had way better correlations between dollar-yen and real yields than nominal yields or nominal rates. So I think now we're all near zero. The, the, the inflation component does matter more than it used to. But you, you don't want to be an evangelist on it. You know, I play around with this quite a lot in terms of working out. It moves around over time. So you have to – and in a sense, you can turn around and say, you know, if, if, if old-fashioned theory in the U.S. is that a fiscal accommodation has a mixed output for currency because it drives interest rates up and the current account deficit up. So, you, But if the interest rates up suck in more money, then, oh. then the currency strengthens. And then so then I looked and said, well, that's great. So now I've got anchored low rates and rising high, longer rates. How do I answer my old textbook question about the, this theoretical effect on the currency? Ooh, it's a bit of both in it. It's, it's almost as close as I can yeah. get. Can, can, so, can I ask you so just one what, one thing to to to, to um, like what what do you think is different like do you, do you think you know in the, the space of your career the way um, uh, central bank uh, inflation targeting has happened uh, and what has happened with fiscal policy in the last decade and then in the last twelve months um, what do you think uh, is there any meaningful shift to how um, you think like growth works um, at, at a global level. Uh, now compared to, say, 20 or 30 years ago? I look, I think the, the, the biggest difference between 30 years ago is how much faster everything moves around the world. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, you could have had SARS in, in, in Asia and it wouldn't have got to Europe. Um, we know everything now. It's not just not just goods. It's money moves faster. It's everything moves faster. We're much more interlinked. Um, and, and I think that's the you know, that's the overarching change. The, the, the other biggest change in our markets, which is why the real nominal thing matters, is we have taken for granted since 2000 that there is not really any inflation. Inflation's not two. You know, we worry about some countries that can't keep it above naught. We don't worry about people keeping it under two. I, I remember Ireland in the... Um, uh in the late 90s and we had very like wild inflation uh and after the introduction of the euro uh and it was pretty scary um i mean just the way prices would literally go up from one week to the next uh you know you'd go go and uh, buy a pint uh one day and then it would be uh, cheaper the next saturday night when you went out i was sorry more expensive the next the next uh, saturday when you went out so um pretty scary so Sorry, go ahead, uh, uh, Ken. No, no, and I, this is just something. It's something actually I've been thinking about a lot over the years. But now that we're talking about it, I've got someone to talk to. The real versus nominal question, I suppose. Um, you think, at least as far as FX is concerned, Ken, do you think it's fair to say that real yields trigger and are catalysts for uh, mean reversions to trend, whereas nominals cause overshoots and directionality in the in the short term? Uh, maybe I hadn't thought about it that much, that much, or in that sense. I mean, I, I'd started off thinking that um, that you have to find a different way of looking at moves in rates when you're close to zero from the way you saw it when you were yeah. at five percent. 
Um, that was really the biggest difference in my mindset about it. But yes, I mean, it, it's you could be right. Okay, fair enough. That, that, that was just more uh, intellectual uh, self-gratification than anything else. I'm going to let, let, let Colgo wrap it up. Thank you. Uh, Kit uh, Dukes, uh, uh, head of um, uh, FX strategy and uh, foreign, foreign exchange and uh, um, credit uh, strategy at, uh, at uh, SockGen. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the VIP show and talk to us this week. Uh, it was fun. That was fun. I'll invite me again sometime. Yeah, yeah, we 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 would love to. Um, certainly, maybe maybe the end of this year, uh, maybe we'll revisit this inflation question. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at the Bip Show. We're on Twitter; it's at the underscore Bip underscore Show, and we're on Facebook too. Uh, just search the Bip Show. We're all there individually at Colgo at James Wheelan forty two and at Ken Vexler. And Kit Jukes is on there sharing uh, uh, some of his thoughts on a daily basis too. Uh, he is well worth a follow. Uh, and of course, don't forget to subscribe. And rate the show. We love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, James Whelan. Thank you very much. I will be posting the investable ideas based on today's show on our Facebook page. And that is it. Thank you very much. Great great episode. Thank you, Ken. Um, and thanks, uh, Ken Vexler. Great uh, chatting as always, mate. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. And thanks, Kit, for coming on. Uh, hopefully next time and sooner rather than later we can catch up for a pint. Uh, much, much miss those pints. Yeah, um, a really good show, really good chat. Thanks again to Kit Dukes for for joining us on uh, The Bip Show. We will catch you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.